Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did. To create this ad, to learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai. Hey, Slate listeners. I'm Christina Cotarucci, the host of Slow Burn, Gaze Against Briggs. I want to tell you about a special event we're doing at the Tribeca Film Festival in New York City on June 13th. To celebrate this new season of Slow Burn and Pride Month, we're hosting an exclusive live taping of the show with special guests, including civil rights activist and Black Lives Matter organizer DeRay McKesson, comedian and singer Esther Fallick, Eric Marcus, the host of Making Gay History, and Sam Fader, director of the Netflix documentary Disclosure, about the depiction of trans people in film and television. We'll dive deeper into this season and talk about the lasting impact of the Briggs Initiative and the continued fight over LGBTQ rights in schools. It'll be the perfect way to celebrate Pride Month this June with LGBTQ stories and voices across generations. Again, that's June 13th at the Tribeca Film Festival in New York. You can get tickets now at TribecaFilm.com slash slowburn. Hope to see you there. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello, and welcome to the Trump in Davos edition of Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. I'm Felix Salmon, joined by Anna Shemansky and Jordan Weissman, and... In Davos, Switzerland, or Davos, as I guess we should call it this week, we have Jacob Weisberg. Hello, Felix. Hello, money people. Um, you are right there in the in the the thick of it all. This is the the year that Davos, which has always been this conference, which was like full of wonky economists and finance ministers and high-minded talk about the state of the world just completely got obliterated first by a snowstorm and then by donald trump <laughs> he kind of took over ev every conversation right yeah it was clearly the only headline that was going to come out of dallas this year was about whatever trump said and in that sense it was it was very shrewd, you know, that everyone assumed that, that Davos represented a good part of what Trump and Trump's constituency is hostile to, i.e. globalization. But in the, with Steve Bannon gone, uh, he, there was nothing preventing him from coming here. And he uh, sold his message pretty effectively. Um, I mean, he gave a very conciliatory speech without a lot of substance, um, but he... You know, he. I think the story is it's going to be largely a positive one about his visit. And in fairness, Davos probably is a kind of civilizing influence on Donald Trump. It's probably a good thing for him to come here, speak to some other world leaders, behave like a like a normal human being to some extent. Um, so you know, I don't, I don't, I don't know that it's a disaster for anybody. So he was always like the avatar of everything that davos wasn't you know he's the um 
anti-trade agreements, anti-immigration, anti-equality, like America comes first and the rest of you can all go to hell in a handbasket. Uh, he, like, if there was one politician in the world who was in opposition to everything that Davos stands for, it was Donald Trump. And that doesn't seem to be the case anymore. Well, he came with a message that was a message a lot of people come to Davos with, which is invest in what I'm selling. So his message was very much invest in America. It's a great place to do business. We're getting rid of all the regulations that would make it hard to do things. We've cut corporate taxes and the sort of open for business. That was the line. And that's not so different from what leaders of a lot of countries around the world like, come o- to open Davos for to say. They make their pitch. The open for business is this cliche, right? It's like this weird obligatory thing that every single world leader has to say in their speech to Davos is, my country is open for business. I mean, in this case, though, I was about to call it a euphemism, but it's not even real. I mean, he's just going and saying, hey, I just cut taxes right. a bunch. Thank you. very. You're welcome. Like, that's his message. It's, you know, I just gave you a lot of money, global investors. Like, I cut ca- taxes on capital. And beyond that, I yeah, I'm getting rid of regulations you didn't like. It's not like he even has to sell that very hard. This is that's so, red meat for Davos. So, so I guess that's the real question, which I have for, for you, Jacob, is like we are, we know what Trump said um the question is how was it received um you know among a crowd who you and i both know love nothing more than being unbelievably rude about this guy um from the minute he stepped onto the world scene um have they softened their opposition to him now i think they have and i think that happened even before his speech his people have been here all week and they've been treated I mean, not, it's not just normalization of the administration. They've been treated reverentially. Um, I don't think they've been challenged in any serious way. And the, you know, the Davos types, the, the bankers and the hedge fund managers and the CEOs, they, they love the tax cut and they are, I think, sincerely convinced that Trump is having a very positive effect on the economy now. I mean, everybody's had, everybody who's invested in markets is having a very, very good year. So this is and, not, this is not the home of the resistance then. I, I mean, you know, Trump, Trump was, he was, he was booed for one moment in his speech when he said fake news, which was, you know, he, as he should have been. Um, but other than that, I mean, there's certainly a lot of people who are sort of sitting on their hands and, you know, there are lots of people here who are no fans of Donald Trump. That's for sure. But he has not, I don't think he has experienced a hostile reception in any way, nor have any of his people. So that doesn't surprise me if we're talking about people in finance, but I'm wondering about other world leaders. How, how do we know how they have been reacting to him? Yeah. What about the Africans in particular? I mean, after that shithole countries statement like you would think at least the africans might be a little bit opposed to his presence and they were supposed to walk out weren't they i don't believe that happened he did not have i think he was meant to have a, a bilateral meeting with um paul kagame the the president of rwanda um i didn't actually hear any report if there was one on what what transpired um but you know dealing with trump if you're another world leader is a question of strategy i, I probably Macron in France has figured out how to play him most effectively, which is, you know, give him a big parade and a, and a military band. <laughs> you know, don't make, don't make fun of him to his face. 
and try to manipulate him. Is it, know, true, is, it true that, really is it true that Macron is the guy we have to thank for persuading him to go to Davos in the first place? Uh, I, I did hear some version of that. I don't know if it's, I don't know where the idea came from, but that certainly seems like a plausible scenario. I, I'm just, I'm thinking back to a conversation I think last year. We had Davos's PR guy come on, right? Uh, Adrian. Adrian. And he and I got into a fight about. A very good PR guy, by the yeah. way. A former, a former serious journalist. Yeah. We were, we were talking, we had, a, we had a fight where Adrian was talking about, you know, Davos and the, the people were showing up there and, you know, how they were thinking about inequality and, you know, how corporate, you know, global corporations and global capital were going to deal with it. And I, I just, my impulse was to call bullshit because these are the people who are going to benefit from it, who benefit from all these trends and they don't really have a stake in stopping them. And I think now, you know, you see how, you, you see what Davos is really about in the end, which is global capital and the politicians who they influence getting together. And why are they so, why are they warming to Trump? Why are they happy with him? Because nobody since arguably Reagan has given more to capital than this president. Even if he's done it in his own haphazard, inept way, he has still delivered something that nobody else has. And so it's just, that's, that's what it boils down to. It, it boils down to returns, ROI, and they are getting it. I think, I think that, you've nailed it, Jordan. <laughs> that's it. That's it. That's all. That's the whole thing. Sorry. Anyway, I just want to claim vindication there. So the other thing which may or may not have been surprising was that Trump clearly loved Davos. He was he had this big smile on his face. He was walking around the convention center, glad handing people. There were crowds everywhere. He meant he went. There were no protests anywhere. He was getting amazing softball questions from Klaus Schwab. Um and he really f looked and felt like he was in his element. Um almost more than say even Bill Clinton, who has always been the sort of apotheosis of of Davos man. Do you think that, like, number one, this means that he loved it so much he's just going to come back at every opportunity? And number two, that he's kind of single-handedly um, changed the whole conception of what Davos is, to, to Jordan's point, from being, like, a high-minded talking shop where we get to intone about inequality and poverty to just being a sort of celebration of investment and um, growth and capitalism. Well, those things swing back and forth, right? So when the economy is bad, you can talk more about poverty and inequality. But when it's booming, the sort of true colors come out in a way. I think he will be back. And as I say, I think it's it's probably a civilizing influence on him. In terms of why he loved it so much, you know, I think you have to remember the sort of Queen's Donald Trump, who feels this sort of sting of rejection from an establishment. And, you know, I think in the old days, he probably was never invited to Davos. And I think he probably really wanted to be invited to Davos. And now he's <laughs> and he's not only invited, he's begged to come to Davos. And he goes on his own terms and he experiences this tremendous bootlicking sycophancy from, from everyone. Why wouldn't he like it? It's the ultimate vindication for him. Awesome. Reboot your credit card with Apple Card, the only credit card designed for iPhone. It gives you up to 3% daily cash back on every purchase. It's real cash that never expires or loses value. Apply for Apple Card in the Wallet app on iPhone. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Daily cash is available via Apple Cash Card issued by Green Dot Bank, member FDIC, or as a statement credit. Terms and more at applecard.com. Okay, um, 
But let's move on to his um, oleaginous underling. Oh, my God. Steve Ms. Mnuchin. Mr. Steve Mnuchin. <laughs> the man you can neither take seriously or literally. <laughs> As it turns out. Um, so... Steve Mnuchin um, managed to come out over the course of Davos with two diametrically opposed um, dollar policies. He arrives on his first day <laughs> and gives an impromptu press conference. He's like, yeah, the weak dollar is great. We don't care about the dollar. And then like, by the end of the week, he's coming out saying, no, a strong dollar is in the national interest. And um, I am so happy, Jacob, that we have you on this show to be able to decipher um, – Treasury Secretary Ease, because you know more about what how how all of these statements work than than anyone else. So what happened? Well, I think what uh, Felix might be referring to is I did uh, write a book with Bob Rubin after he uh, left the Clinton administration, where he was Treasury Secretary, and Rubin was the uh, essence of b a discipline on the subject of talking about the dollar, and he was very much of the view that you should essentially never say anything about the dollar. You should make a formulaic statement that you repeat verbatim every time because you don't want to be moving markets accidentally by saying different things and improvising. And you probably don't want to be trying to move uh, uh, currency markets intentionally because it's a dangerous game that often backfires and probably can't work in any long-term way to affect the direction of currencies. So, but currency so, markets are very twitchy and respond yeah. to everything. So this is really interesting. Like the, the formula that Rubin came up with and which was then slavishly followed by, to a greater or lesser extent, by basically all of his successes until Mnuchin was, repeat after me, a strong dollar is in the national interest. Um, and what you're saying is that that was just words, that it was never designed to have any actual meaning. It was just meant to be a formula he could trot out to say, I'm not going to say anything about the dollar. Well, I do think it had meaning. I mean, you could come up with a formulation of that statement that would, uh, th I mean, that's a statement that indicates you have no problem with the dollar being strong. That's good for the country. And there are many people who have the view that a weaker dollar promotes, promotes exports. In and, including and trade. Donald Trump, right? Including Donald Trump, right. But at one point, even during the Clinton administration, I remember Rubin varied that statement after great thought and discussion. And I think what they said was, the dollar has been strong for a good while now. <laughs> so, <laughs> it's, so That was taken to mean that they would not be so opposed to the dollar going down and, and don't expect them to try to do anything to prop it up. So... I've been sort of baffled by this whole thing, which is watching it unfold. Like when Mnuchin said, you know, a, a weaker dollar might be good for trade, like the dollar, uh, you know, markets went nuts. The dollar fell immediately to like a three year low um, because somehow they thought that meant the administration would have a weak dollar policy. And the thing that strikes me as like kind of nuts about that is there's almost very there's very 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 little a treasury secretary can actually do to influence the value of the dollar beyond opening his mouth except yes. exactly that's yes. it it's all self-fulfilling prophecies there are things that a treasury secretary the, the fed can do it the fed can buy can buy foreign currencies or sell them and try to drive down the dollar the way other central banks drive down their currencies and there are things the treasury can do in concert with the fed um if they if everyone is willing to cooperate but really Mnuchin 
like he's got there's like this one account that the u.s has to kind of play with the foreign exchange markets that's like the equivalent of an old 401k everyone has forgotten about it's so tiny there's like he has very little firepower on this and yet his words carry so much meaning and that is like i guess i i just don't get why i don't get like is it other than just like the markets are naturally twitchy what is it that i think it's both as Jacob was saying, when you've had a standard yeah. and then you deviate from that standard, that makes it more meaningful. And also, yes, markets are stupid, especially <laughs> currency markets. They're especially in the short term can react to things and start pricing in things that are far into the future and make no sense. Yeah, I just like because I went back yeah. and I read about Ruben's first statement, the first time he used that formulation of strong dollars in the national interest. And at least there was a little bit of policy meat there because it turns out that was at a point when the dollar had been falling for a long time and they were trying to prop it back up by creating this like international. There was an international effort to prop up the dollar that he was coordinating more or less. So like that at least kind of I, I get why that statement was meaningful. And now it just seems to become this piety. I think it's also because. The dollar has recently been weak, and this came right after the announcements of the tariffs, which, yes, are not actually that meaningful, but I think coming on the heels of that made it. But you know have what's, a, what's ironic impact. about that? Okay. No. Jacob, I, I feel like we keep running over you. No, well, I was just going to say there have been currency interventions, and when they happen, they 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 work best if no one is expecting them. But the, the Treasury coordinates with the Fed, and they typically, when they've ever been effective, they're coordinated with other governments, particularly the central banks in Asian countries, where the they're very large foreign currency reserves, and the, the these reserves are not so large that they can ultimately affect the value of the currency, but they can affect the direction. And there have been these instances where concerted, unexpected, strong interventions have changed the direction of currencies. But this is a tool that you want to use very seldom, if ever, but you want to keep your powder dry. You don't want to be signaling all the time about what you might do. And, you know, it's just, it's one of these things that had become a kind of bipartisan consensus. You know, when they give you the keys to the Treasury Department, they tell you where the washroom is. And by the way, don't say anything stupid about the dollar. <laughs> and, you know, Republican administrations and Democratic administrations had come to an agreement that this was a good way for the government to act. And it's just an example, I think, of just the kind of novice incompetence, unsophistication of the Trump people when it comes to the sort of grown-up work of, of running the government, you know, shooting your mouth off about the dollar. And, you know, when the Treasury Secretary has to be corrected by the Commerce Secretary, <laughs> Wilbur Ross, when they have to wake him up in a meeting to say, oh, well, you know, the, the Treasury Secretary has really gone off the reservation about the dollar, it just sends a signal to the rest of the world that, you know, the, the B team is in charge here. And the rest of the world is all in Davos, right? Every single central bank governor, finance minister, they're all there. They all read the headlines upon Nushin's arrival. Um, and then they all need to sort of meet with him. We understand Trump has this kind of unique outsize aura of Trump, which, which follows him around, but Mnuchin has no aura of anything. So how has he been, um, received in Davos? He was, I went to a panel he did. Uh, actually, I think it was, uh, uh, it was televised live on uh, CNBC. They sponsor some of the events here. Uh, and he was being, that was the head, the headline. He had just made his, his, 
dollars should be lower comment. And so this was his, the place where he had to kind of sheepishly correct it. And, uh, it's just very, he's just very unimpressive. I mean, he's been marching around with a large entourage. I've been, you know, I've sort of crossed paths with him several times. Um, but, you know, there are people who have credibility at Davos. Central, many of the central bank governors. Our friend Martin Wolf, the economist, you know, when you see, whenever he's talking to somebody, you see a little crowd gathering around because everyone wants to hear what he has to say. Steve Mnuchin, not so much. I, I just want to call back to something again, um, Felix, which was when we f- were first talking about Mnuchin after he got selected as Treasury Secretary. And I think we actually agreed on this at the time, which was that he was going to be an adult standard issue Treasury Secretary who'd be perfectly fine at the job and uncontroversial, that it seemed like this was just a vanilla pick. And I think we can both say we were wrong. Like <laughs> We've managed to get like a below replacement Treasury Secretary. And that was actually one of the surprises of the Trump administration. He was supposed to be one of the he was supposed yeah. to be balanced. I mean, couldn't he just do a Jack Lew and be completely invisible? That would be a vast improvement. Absolutely. He'd then be a replacement level. <laughs> okay, enough of Treasury Secretaries. Um... This podcast is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Let's face it, sometimes multitasking can be overwhelming. Like when your favorite podcast is playing and the person next to you is talking and your car fan is blasting, all while you're trying to find the perfect parking spot. But then again, sometimes multitasking is easy, like quoting with Progressive Insurance. They do the hard work of comparing rates so you can find a great rate that works for you, even if it's not with them. Give their nifty comparison tool a try and you might just find getting the rate and coverage you deserve is easy. All you need to do is visit Progressive's website to get a quote with all the coverages you want, like comprehensive and collision coverage or personal injury protection. Then you'll see Progressive's direct rate and their tool will provide options from other companies all lined up and ready to compare. So it's simple to choose the rate and coverages you like. Press play on comparing auto rates. Quote at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. But, Jacob, of course, this is the World Economic Forum. It's not just this American entourage. We have had a whole bunch of um, heads of state, Narendra Modi, um, Macron from France, um, and others, including my own Theresa May, bless her, giving speeches and and trying to turn Davos. I w- I'm going to say I'm not there, so you're going to have to tell me. But has Davos become much more centered on sort of international politics and what the heads of state are doing rather than looking at the finance ministers and the central bank governors and the kind of nuts and bolts of the workings of the economy has this become more of a political event now yeah i'm not sure i've sorted it out but i think increasingly there are multiple worlds that operate in parallel here so you still have the the central bank governor davos where they're having one set of meetings you have the the world leaders making public statements and interacting with each other and those are they're increasingly all here or almost all here um certainly the european leaders and uh you know they're trying to they're they're doing different things but there's sort of that stage then there's the sort of 
NGO, care about the rest of the world, inequality and poverty Davos. And that still goes on, but almost on a separate track. You have journalist Davos. You have, um, you know, all the discussion around technology and the technology platforms that have an increasing presence. And this here year, of course, Facebook. is cryptocurrency Davos, right? Everyone, there's, there's yes, a big and you have Bitcoin Davos, Bitcoin Davos. and the, the, you know the the cliche of the, of the year is definitely blockchain, um, which you know you can hear people bluffing about in sort of just about every any session. Um, so you know you have these things, and I'm not sure those worlds touch. I mean, you have CEOs who come to Davos because it's a very efficient way to schedule meetings with each other and with clients, and they'll sit in a hotel suite and have half hour meetings for the entire week and they can get in 50, 60 meetings and they may not even have any public presence at all or anything to do with the public program. So it's just, it's a, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a multiple ring circus now. You know, Jacob, the way you're talking about blockchain Davos and finance minister Davos, it, it's like, it sounds like you're talking about Twitter with more private helicopters, like just like these little, <laughs> like, inter, like these little clicks kind of floating around, but it's, it's Twitter IRL and richer. And what you're describing also sounds very similar to banking conferences, which is they take place at hotels and you set up your, your, your group meetings and you never want to get into a group meeting because they're useless. You try to get into your one-on-ones. You have to like butter up your salespersons. You get those one-on-ones and they're often in hotel rooms. It's so it sounds like Davos is becoming much more like that. Way to demystify it. But at least this year, everyone gets to complain about the snow, right? There's like a yeah. boring topic of conversation, which everyone can like talk about snow. Is that really a thing? Well, part of the reason it works, it was, I, I came a day late on Tuesday when they they'd sort of got things going again, but apparently on Monday, it took people hours and hours to get to Davos from the Zurich airport. It should take two or two and a half hours. And I think it took people six. So that was a bit of a pain for people who got stuck in it. But, you know, part of the reason Davos works in all these ways for the people who come here is because you, once you come here, you're sort of trapped. I think after one year, they didn't they do Davos in New York one year? Was they before did. That was, my time. That was after, it was yeah. after 9-11. They moved it to after New York. After 9-11. And that wouldn't work at all, you know, because people in New York are in New York and will go to an event. But when you're, when you're in Davos and when you're in the forum, in World Economic Forum in Davos, you're here. There's nowhere else to go. And so you have a hundred percent of the attention of the people while they're in the place. I, I do think the isolation is the, is the brilliant innovation. And in terms of the heads of state, though, there seems, I mean, Tell me if I'm wrong here, but there seems to have been a kind of convergence that the speeches they give have all started merging into each other. And there's just this sort of standard Davos speech, which you give when you go to Davos. And like you can be it doesn't really matter who you're listening to. It's all, you know, platitudes about how we're open for business and a great place for investment and we want good trade deals and um is that new or did it always happen and no one really cared about it? Or I, yeah, I'm trying to work out whether anything is changing. It's a place you can give a very boring speech or a very interesting speech. There's nothing that prevents you from, from being interesting if you want to. And there are, you know, last year you were here, Felix, I think she Jinping gave this speech. She was interesting. Was a, yeah. Has anyone committed news in Davos this year, which would like... You Other know, than Mnuchin? <laughs> <laughs> Other than our 
in uh, that other, other, secretary. other than by accidentally saying the truth which yeah. is that he, i have no control over currencies well xi jinping's thing last year was you know the united states is going to abdicate all this world leadership and hey china wants to take it on um curiously the that that slot was taken a little bit by justin trudeau much more benignly you know, saying that they were going to st step in and away on the Trans-Pacific Partnership, on the the Asian trade deal that the United States is pulling out of. And I think that actually put some pressure on Trump to reference it in his speech and say something mildly mollifying about we're very open to doing fair trade deals with the Asian countries one by one or even all as a, as a group. Of course, they would be based on his idea of trade reciprocity, which is based on equality of result, not equality of opportunity. Um, but, you know, Trudeau's speech, I think, got a lot of attention because when the United States abdicates moral leadership, but also more specific kinds of leadership around trade, around climate change, um, this is the question of, is it possible for someone to step in? And Merkel steps in very quietly. Macron and Trudeau are interested in being a little more visible in that role of doing the things that a healthy United States would be doing on a global stage. Interesting, because, yeah, everyone kind of assumed that in the, that, that the global leadership vacuum, which was created by Trump's election, would be filled by Merkel, but she now is in a very precarious posi position. So it's actually the next generation. It's it's Macron and Trudeau who seem to be now sort of stepping into that gap. And it's very encouraging, I think. I mean, I find both of them very, very appealing young leaders. And I think they're, they're both articulate and interesting and uh, seem like there, you know, Merkel may not be around forever. She's been in office. How long, Felix? 12 years? Something, uh, something like that? At least a thousand. <laughs> a thousand. Wow. Okay. Uh, but I mean, I think there's also something just sort of inherently appealing about Canadian leadership, at least like. And his socks. His yeah. socks. His no, socks but like, great. seriously, like, it, you know, a world. Did you say that during the Mulroney years? <laughs> <laughs> Jordan? Uh, no. So, okay. No, but like right mm -hmm. now, like, you know, you talk about the trade deal, right? The I forget what they renamed TPP to. The CT. Yeah, that, that was they had to they had to have rebranding of it. Um, but the, the the final deal they're signing is actually, I would say, better for the world than what TPP was because it's got less of the crazy uh, IP protections that the U.S. was insisting on. Um, and the U.S. has a lot of corporate interest, and there was there's a great article in the Atlantic about this. But you know, the the U.S. was has a lot of corporate interests that are not. Uh, so much in the interest of the rest of the globe and the rest of the globe's poor or, or uh, people in developing countries like Vietnam. So uh, a softer, gentler uh, Canadian-led global trade order, um, at least slightly softer, slightly gentler Canadian-led global trade order is kind of kind of nice, I think. It's a worthwhile Canadian initiative. <laughs> yeah, there we go. I was waiting for it. Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did to create this ad. To learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai. Okay, on which note, let's have a numbers round. Jacob, I know that you're always extremely well prepared and so that you have a number off the top of your head. 
Um, you know, uh, Felix, your, your your excellent producer Martin, who's helping uh, put the show together, reminded me that you need a number when you go on Slate Money. So I scrambled and came up with one. Um, but here is the here is my number: two point oh five million. Any guesses? That is the number of jobs uh, added to the economy in 2017, which Trump was boasting about his prowess at job creation. But what's interesting about that number, it is the lowest annual job creation number of the past seven years. Mm -hmm. That is, since the recovery began under Barack Obama. There's not a huge range. The highest year, according to the labor statistics, was 2.993 million jobs. But Trump's uh, job creation performance was actually the weakest since the recovery began. Uh, Jordan? Uh, my number is 18, as in 18 carat, as in the 18 carat gold toilet that the Guggenheim <laughs> Museum <laughs> offered the White House. Um, the, the backstory here is that uh, apparently the White House requested a Van Gogh for the uh, Trump president's uh, private residence um, that he and Melania wanted or their interior decorator wanted. And this is this is tradition. Presidents often do this. But the Guggenheim said, no, we cannot offer you that Van Gogh. We are sorry. However, we can give you this 18 karat gold toilet that uh artist Maurizio, <laughs> uh that artist Maurizio called Maurizio Catalan a, a great Italian uh I think it gets described as like a prank star a lot but this great Italian artist had installed at the Guggenheim and the piece is titled America and the idea was just he was representing America and it's a functioning toilet you can go and use it people have lined up to do it um and the idea was that America could be best symbolized by a actual golden john which at the time it came out he, he put this thing out uh People sort of assumed this was at least partly a reference to Donald Trump. He has sort of been cagey about that. But uh, the White House has so far not accepted the toilet. I think the only way to come back from this sick burn is to take it, to say, you know what? We want the golden toilet. Donald Trump likes golden toilets. This is the world's nicest golden toilet. He should have it. Anyway, that's and that's my take. (laughs) Don't know. I can follow that. Donald Trump a golden toilet. Yeah, he should have his damn golden toilet. Coles to Newcastle, as they say. (laughs) So my number is 12, as in 12 years. So there is one former world leader who is definitely not at Davos, and that is Luis Ignacio Lula da Silva, who (laughs) this week lost an appeal on his uh, corruption conviction. So it looks like he is most likely not most likely not going to be able to participate in the um, elections. We'll, we'll still see. But I just bring this up because we actually do have a lot of important elections coming up. And Brazil is one of them. And the current candidates are awful. <laughs> but so is he actually going to be in jail? His passport was taken away. <laughs> I know he, that. Has. Uh, wait, question. Uh, Can he run from jail? <laughs> <laughs> That's another good question. I don't think so. I, I'm pretty <laughs> sure he cannot. And the guy who's running in second is truly this horrible right winger, ultra conservative who has said, um, who, uh, his last name is Bolsonaro, who, when he uh, voted to impeach Dilma Rousseff, actually said that he was, um, his vote was in honor of the person who tortured Dilma Rousseff. Wow. So oh. just saying, wow. This is, it's a somewhat interesting development. Um, so my number is 1.581 trillion dollars. This is, um, 
the annual report that Oxfam puts out about inequality on the first day of Davos, and I have been very rude about this report many times, and I actually quite like it this year for reasons which you can read on my blog, Cause and Effect. But the thing which didn't make it into the report, really, or not explicitly anyway, you had to kind of do a lot of rootling around in the footnotes, was that the bottom 50% of the world, according to Credit Suisse, has $1.581 trillion of net wealth, which is way up from what they thought it was last year. Last year, they thought it was $409 billion. This is like, it's basically quadrupled. Um, the, the average net wealth for the bottom 50% has basically been revised upwards from $110 a person to $427 a person. Um, and this is, I just think, a little data point worth celebrating. Obviously, the actual amount of wealth didn't go up that much in a year, but they discovered $8 trillion worth of wealth that they didn't realize existed in places like India and China and Russia. And a lot of that was in the bottom 50%. And it turns out the bottom 50% are a little bit richer than we thought they were. Felix, what changed in how they calculated? Did they move to purchasing power or did they just, what's the, there must be some difference in how they're conceiving of it. So the main, so there's a lot of minor methodological changes, but mainly what they did was they just had new data sources in India and China and Russia, all of which managed to reveal a certain amount of wealth which had not previously been counted. It's basically in those three countries. Um, but anyway, yeah, I think that, I think we can, we can wrap up the Davos show for another year. It's been, it's been a weird one. It's been a strange one, but, um, next year we will come back with another Davos show. But for this year and for this week, I think that's it. So yeah. So thank you for listening to Slate Money. Do keep on writing to us. It's slate money at slate.com com listen to amicus which comes out every other week on saturday morning can we, wait can amicus. we yeah wait can we please uh, amicus amicus, amicus. Yeah, it's not it's no one knows it. Uh, amicus for the love of god it's called well i mean you know americans might call it amicus i i still <laughs> i still believe that there there is such a thing as an amicus brief and they're wonderful things um it's at slate.com slash amicus um, on Saturday mornings along with Slate Money so after you've listened to Slate Money you can listen to Amicus it's Dahlia Lithwick talking jurisprudence and all manner of sexy things there um, Jacob as a, as a true Anglophile will you accept Amicus as a as a alternative pronunciation or am I just on my own here I will not file an Amicus brife in your defense <laughs> I've never heard that pronunciation before. It definitely took me a minute to figure out what you were talking it about. It sounds like a plant. <laughs> <laughs> it's a ficus, but... <laughs> okay, so tune in next week, and thanks for listening to Slate Money. Oh, oh, thanks, and, thank, and thanks, thanks to guys. Dan Schrader for being, like, producery. Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. 
offer a solution. Utilize cutting edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did to create this ad. To learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai.